That's the first thing we're going to go. Um, we're going to go to the national park called Beit Shan, which is the only place in the world where you have virtually a complete Roman city that's open to the public. What? what? Period. It exists here? It exists in Eretz Yisrael. What? And you'll see, it's huge. And it's important. And it goes back to the Tanakh. Uh, we'll talk about Shaul HaMelech, who um, ended up in a in an in ignoble manner. He ended up in Beit Shan. Is this widely known? Um, I don't know. No. I, I don't know why people don't know it. You'll, you're after you're we leave... Uh, it also was the home of one of my all-time heroes, a great figure from the 14th century. 14th century is not a well-known century, but an amazing in, uh, individual by the name of Rab Estoria Parchi, um, who uh, I'll tell you about, I'll tell you his story, and I think uh, you'll understand why I love it and why he's he's uh, he's really one of a kind uh, in our in our uh, in our very uh, unusual and exciting history. I mean, we have we have a lot of one of a kind people, but he's not like any other. Um, We'll go up to what's arguably the most spectacular crusader castle um, in the Middle East. Um, one that is virtually, uh, is as well preserved as any of them. Um, it's on a mountaintop. The French name for it, because the crusaders are mostly French ruffians, the French name was Belvoir. How's your French? Belvoir. Belvoir. Which is nice view. I think you'll, you will not argue. Uh, when, when you see there, Belvoir, um, in Hebrew they call it Kochav Hayardain. Maybe in the times of the Gemara, there was a Jewish village there called um, Yardena. That was that's a possibility. And um, and finally, we'll dive in Mincha. At the end of the day, we're going to go to uh, a really exciting biblical site that, for a change, is not a kever, it's not a grave site, um, and there's really not like any, and there's nothing quite like it in the world. Um, it is a, um, a relic of a home that several many gedolim, namely the Steiblegon and his son Reb Chaim Kanievsky, is a sal. Um, they, they, they felt confident in the identification that it's the house of the Shunamis. And we'll tell the story there, but remember the Shunamis, we're going to be reading about it, not this week, next week, the following week, but, the, but in four weeks, Parshish Ve'era, it's the Haftara, tells the whole story. Um, Elisha Hanavi, Elisha's the disciple of Eliyahu Hanavi, and Elisha stays with her, and she's renowned for Achnas Orchim, for bringing guests, and um, this is a remnant, it was a place, it remains a place, where Rav Chaim always sent people who had fertility, any issues related to fertility, uh, people went there and um, the results were fairly, uh, are very, very, I mean, I, I have some data, I'll quote to you when we get there, about how many people um, within a year were able to have children. Um, so uh, so if you know anybody, if you want to dive in for anybody, if you want your own own kids to, to come out beautifully, um, so then we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the end, for davening mincha, and back to Yeshiva in time for dinner. That is the day. Ooh, Good. Uh... How's your parsha going? And who's, who's doing Schneidmaker now? I'm trying. Awesome. Wow. So whoa, whoa, whoa. That's great. Can you hear me, Grant? Can you hear this in the back at all? Yeah, a little bit. So we are. We went through Route Six. We went through. What we didn't. We don't ordinarily do. We went up Wadi Ara, which today is primarily Arab, and uh, mostly Israeli Arabs. They have citizenship. They, um, they. The dynamic of Israeli Arabs um, in the in the when the state was created, the Arabs that were on this side of the border um, were in the Israeli side, so they opted for citizenships. And over the over the decades, they've been um, increasingly radicalized, mostly identified with the Palestinian cause. Vote, nevertheless, in the Israeli elections. You know, those are coming up in a couple weeks, and um, have the representatives. The representatives range. Some of them are communists. Some of them, they're, 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 they're some of them are more secular. Some more religious. But generally, they work uh, against the state of Israel in the government. That's how democracies go, right? 
Um, so one of the, um, the one of the anti-Haredi parties um, is a, a Victor Lieberman has his party, and he has a whole plan. Um, he's right wing um, politically, and he he says you take a whole section of Wadi Ara, which is almost exclusively Arab. His feeling is that you could make this, you could, you could give this part to them. Um, but then you take whole swaths of land. He has a whole scheme about how how peace can happen. Um, I don't think any of these politicians are uh, really have a, have a long term vision about how this is going to work. Only only the rabbis do. Uh, that's only when Am Yisrael makes tshuva. And um, but you go in this area, and we're going we're going to be coming from the west, going into um, what's called Emek Israel, Jezreel Valley in in English. And the Jezreel Valley has great stories all over to tell. Um, it's the there's a story of Navosa Yisraeli, not Israeli, but Israel. It's kind of a weird word to translate, uh, to pronounce. Also, the um, Jezreel in English, and Navos had a vineyard. You know this story? It's right there in Sefer Malachim. Also in Divrei Yamim, it comes up. Navos has a vineyard, and the most powerful man in uh, in that section of the world was a wicked king named Ahab, Ahab, who had a an even more wicked wife. Her name. Jezebel. Jezebel. Ezebel. Great name for a daughter, huh? If there's trash. Uh, Ezebel. Hey. Yeah, right, right. Anybody, anybody wants, to, wants to be mean to their daughters and have the other kids make fun of them in the playground? There you go. Ezebel. Uh, and they had, at this point, Ahab was on the rise. He had united. This is when the, the kingdom of the Jews was split. It was the northern kingdom. Uh, they were the, they were the, he was the king of the northern kingdom, Mamachas Yisrael. And um, he had everything. He, had, he was a superpower in the world. He expanded the borders, super rich. And he had designs. He said, he said, I want everything. And he wanted this vineyard of poor Navos. And Navos was not selling it. The uh, Mepharshim said, the Barbanella, Zapshadi says that it was part of his ancestral property. And as such, it had Kedusha. It should stay in the family. If you learn, you learn the Sugis in the Torah, you see that this is not so simple to give up something that Hashem, as it were, willed into your tribe and willed into your family. We're in the um, in this region, Eretz Yisrael. You're in the tribe of a great a great tribe with a great name, Menashe. And um, and uh, he wasn't so quick to, to give it up. And so Izevel was the mastermind behind the king. She conspired. She even called a, a bastion together, a quasi Sanhedrin, to make it look um, pseudo legal. And she she sets up Navos, um, and uh, they they try him and convict him of what? What was his sin? Sedition. Right, he was a, he was Morid Bemelech. He rebelled against the king, and they try him and they convict him and they kill him. They execute him, and uh, the Gemara very scarily says that Navos is waiting, waiting for Ahav, right? Uh, that that Hashem will will take vengeance against uh, against such such acts. Um, this is the time when um, this is the time of great evil. Who is the great prophet in that generation? The great prophet who comes and rebukes Ahav. His name was. I'll give you a hint, he never died. Eliyahu Anavi. And it's Eliyahu who comes and he gives it. He sees Ahab walking along the road. And Ahab sees Eliyahu. And Eliyahu had proclaimed a a famine, a drought in this whole region because of Ahab's extreme evil. In in these days that they had actually got got into full scale of Odazar for the first time in history, they worshipped the Baal. And um, and he he, he says he, he he proclaims the fast and Hashem hears it and there's it's not a fast a drought in the area and um, and the whole area suffers and there's terrible suffering for three years and finally after three years Ahab sees Eliyahu on the road 
and he says, and it's happening in this region where we're driving right now. He says, Atahu Ocher Yisrael, what, Eliyahu, you're the troublemaker of the Jewish people? And the, the prophets, you have to realize, these were heroes. They were fearless. And they gave as good as they got. And he, he doesn't miss a beat. He turns right back. He says, Lo, Atah, It's you and your father's family. His father was Omri. Omri, one of the popular secular Israeli names. Don't give your kid that name. It's cruel. Don't, don't name your kid after a Russia. Uh, but but um, they were they were awful. They were despicable. They brought in full scale of Odazara. They didn't care about uh, common people and their plight. And um, and he said no no. And what happens then? They challenge in one of the most famous duels in history. What are they? What is the challenge? Uh, right, just up north, the the northern mountain range um, that I'm pointing to on your left is Har Carmel. Har Carmel. He's going to challenge him to a showdown. We'll see whose God is right. Right, and that's the great confrontation on, on, on Har Carmel between Eliyahu and Kadosh Baruch Hu and the Nevi'e Baal, the prophets of the Baal, uh, who, who turned to the Baal, and um, somewhere in that their mountain range uh, was was this famous showdown. By the way, it's it's a big question because I'll wonder about this. There's a prohibition from the time that Shlomo Melech built the base of Mikdash. You're not allowed to bring a korban anywhere outside of Yerushalayim, outside of the, the confines of the base of Mikdash. The prohibition is Shchutei Chutz. They're outside, um, and, and it's it's punishable by death. So the famous exception in the case of Eliyahu and other cases, when it's exerah, when it's exerah Shah, when it's a temporary emergency measure, and when you have a great prophet who has Hashem's endorsement, then that that would be okay. And it was all for Kiddush Hashem. It's a fantastic scene. The um, Achav sets up Chiel Habeseli to sit inside the altar and light it on fire, on fire when the Nevi'a Baal, the prophets of Baal, come and start screaming, Hey, Baal, give, do your thing. Come on, come on, Baal. Let's have it. Um, so then he was supposed to light the fire. Whoa, miracles from heaven. Um, and uh, Hashem planted a snake inside the altar and bit uh, bit Chiel uh, HaBeiseli. It didn't end well. Uh, and um, so, the, the, of course, the Nevi'a Baal were not successful. And so they start screaming, Come on, Baal, do your thing! Nothing happening. Eliyahu starts mocking them. He said, Well, you know, maybe the Baal's hard of hearing, so if you yell extra loud, maybe they'll bring the fire down from heaven. And they start making this scream and scream at the top of their voices, Come on, Baal, do your thing! Nothing's happening. Eliyahu says, You know, probably the Baal wants some self, um, you know, self-sacrifice, maybe self-flagellation, cut yourselves. So the people said, "Okay, we'll do that too." And so they start. They start. Um, they take out knives. They start. They start cutting their own skin. Well, the ball's not hearing it. Um, Eliyahu says, "Excuse me, boys. If you step aside for a few moments, my turn." And um, he calls out to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Kaddish Baruch Hu sends down a fire from heaven. The miracle is such. Ordinarily, fire burns. I don't know wood and flammable substances. In this event, it burned. Um, the wood, of course, and the sacrifices on the on the on the altar. It burned the altar. It burned the stones. It burned the dust. Um, the kiddush Hashem was so so dramatic. All of the people present screamed out. Well, we just screamed out in Yom Kippur. Hashem Hu Elokim. Uh, they grabbed the prophets of the Baal. They slit their throats, and everybody simultaneously returned to Hashem. One of the great scenes of Kiddush Hashem in, in all of history. How long did it last? About a day. The next day, Izevil puts out a warrant for the arrest of Eliyahu. He's got to flee for his life. Where does he go? No, he goes down to Horeb. He goes down to Harsina. 
And on the way, as Olga, a very important story. I'm giving you just a sketchy uh, overview of it. You should look at it inside. He goes down to Har Sinai. That's where he has his famous encounter. He looks from Kaddish Baruch by Har Sinai. Hashem sends, I, I said this over in one of my Divei Torah on Rosh Hashanah. Hashem sends a, um, he sends a big fire. No, doesn't find, doesn't encounter Kaddish Baruch A big earthquake. No, not there. Big, big wind. Uh-uh. And then he sends a, anybody remember this? Yeah, I mean, get the Hebrew down. You would have got the, you got the English. A kol dmama daka, a still small voice. Wow, is this powerful? You have to know this. Remember this and look it up, and you'll hear it. Yeah, I'm not going to be the, the. It's not the last time you're going to be hearing this idea of the still small voice that we find the Kaddish Baruch Hu in our lives in the world, often where we least expect it, and often in the subtle, sublime moments. You've had those two in your life, right? Where suddenly Kaddish Baruch Hu is there in a way that you never anticipated. Um, a kol dmama daka. Um, this valley has seen has seen many many uh, great stories. Many post shmita. What's that? They're working it post shmita. Yeah, post shmita working the, the land. Emma's. Um, this is a valley filled with kibbutzim, and they, when the um, Zionists started their their enterprise, the kibbutz movement started with the, what they call the Second Aliyah in 1903. Had a big socialist vision that they're going to make all of the all of the country into an egalitarian utopia, and uh, everything's going to be equal, and they're going to they're going to they're going to show mankind that Marx Marxist ideas can actually uh, be brought to fruition. Um, the kibbutz movement—I don't know if you studied it, you know about it—is a total failure. A uh, uh, hundred years later, like nothing's come about it. Most of the the only successful kibbutzim today—I'm generalizing, but I'm mostly right about what I'm saying. The successful kibbutzim are those that went um, pri- privatized and went capitalistic. <coughs> Most of the kibbutzim, the original kibbutz on the banks of the Kinneret disbanded in 2007. They, they voted to uh, to de- decollectivize. Mordechai? If you can't hear me, I certainly can't hear you. Real loud. Can somebody translate closer? I, I just don't hear you. Back in the day, there was success. There was. There were vi- well. Look, one of the reasons was they were extremely idealistic. They were they were willing to live in, in almost subhuman conditions. Um, but if you're committed to an ideology, they took these are guys. Realize a lot of these original kibbutzniks were fresh from the base medrash. They 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 weren't so far removed from the from a Torah life. And one of the things you you, you know this about Torah and keeping mitzvahs is it makes you idealistic. So you take the Torah out of a Jew, you still got the idealism, and they're gonna—they're almost on a mission to prove that this is the new world, this is the new Torah that they're gonna—they're gonna prove true. In this valley, were number were a number of different kibbutzim. The original kibbutz movement, um, there were there were there were few that were founded here. In the 1920s, a new a new breed came along called the Hashomer Hatzair, the Young Guard, um, and they built yet more kibbutzim. They were even more radicalized, more left wing, more anti Torah. And um, and it was on that kibbutz that I volunteered, and um, I volunteered at a place called Bereshita, which is uh, we'll pass later on today, not far from here. Um, it's a biblical name. Um, Shita is a is a, is a special tree, um, a sycamore tree, and um, we had a connection in our family. His name was Aryeh Ben Gurion, so that's why I went there. He was nephew of David, and um, they sent me up there to. I wanted to learn Hebrew and have the authentic kibbutz experience, but anybody been in kibbutz before? No. Lola later. Anyway, so uh, so they sent me with all these Scandinavians. So I didn't want. I did not want to learn Swedish. 
And um, so Aryeh Ben-Gurion put me to work in his garden and he spoke Hebrew to me and he gave me a book to read that actually, un- unintentionally, he was a guy who actually developed his niche in the um, secular scene, in the Hashemir Hatzir scene. He was developing how to keep um, Jewish holidays and be secular at the same time. And he, he was like the expert on the subject. I have no idea what that even means. Right. Anyway, that was his niche. But in his library, he had a book that I read that I can't recommend today, but it actually set me off and was the beginning of my becoming from. So actually, this valley has some meaning to me. Uh, this, this, this is what kicked off my uh, the beginning of a very long, arduous uh, process. Um, Gidon was here. You'll, we'll see at one point. We can't see it. Oh, wait a minute. Looking for a dome-like mountain. It's Har Tavor. Who fought up on the mount, on the top of Mount Tavor in this region? Devora Hanavia. Devora Hanavia. She confronted Sisra. Sisra's voice was so uh, was so ferocious, so terrorizing that um, any creature, man, woman, child, beast, who heard Sisra's thunderous voice would immediately soil itself. Except for Devorah. Devorah could endure. Devorah had, uh, had also superhuman powers. Devorah and Barak. Devorah and Barak, right? Her husband. Oh. And um, she took him out. That's, that story takes place here. I, I, I'm, how, how, much, how many of you learned Tanakh? I mean, but really learned Tanakh? That's a requirement. You're of Moshe Feinstein. I'm reading his biography right now. The book that he kept with him, wherever he went, he always was with Tanakh. Always learning Tanakh. It was uh, once upon a time all Jews knew Tanakh. Like you guys know sports statistics, <laughs> right? Like they they knew it cold. And if you learn it, and then you go to these places, it comes to life. Uh, it's very very exciting. We only have a day here. We're only going to see a fraction of what there is to see. We'll see. We'll end the day with one biblical story that I already I already gave you a little bit of a heads up about. We're heading now. Um, we're heading. We did a bit of a loop. We're going down to the east now, and we're going into um, from Emek Israel, going into the Beit Shan region. And our first spot is Nachal Kibbutzim, um, the mountain on the mountain that's over on the right is the is what's called Har Gilboa, the Gilboa Mountain region. Uh, anybody did anybody have a biblical association with Har Gilboa? Rocky Gilboa. There's Rocky Gilboa. That is an association that modern minds might have and it did <laughs> after all um, win the Oscar in 1976 sorry about that yeah rock 76 shouldn't see something movies are Oscar. Um anyway Har Gilboa La Havdil uh, Har Gilboa was the place where the first king confronted the Plishtim the Philistines first king uh, arguably Moshe Yoshua, but the first person who actually had a monarchy and actually had two generations in, in, in the Malchus, his name was? Shaul. Shaul Amelech. King Saul. Two generations? Only two generations were kings. Shaul and, and, and he, Shaul did not make good. He didn't kill the king of Amalek, and his utter demise was met in the mountains on the on the right, and Har Gilboa at the hands of the Plishtim. Whole question, what were the Plishtim doing in this part of Eretz Israel? Their region is the Gaza Strip, Gaza area, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gat, uh, um, Ekron. But they were they were bad guys in the Tanakh, gave us constant hard time, and had reached this far in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, met Shaul and most of his sons, including the uh, David's beloved companion, Yonasan, and um, they, they killed them, decapitated all of them. When word came 
Actually, Shaw was not. Shaw was. They only decapitated Shaw later on. There's one thing I, I should say about Shaw. When word came to David that uh, Shaw had fallen, David, don't, don't forget, was in in flight. He was a refugee from Shaw who wanted to murder David. But David didn't hold a grudge against him, and actually, when he could have killed him, he didn't even kill him. In the famous story in Engedi, and quite the contrary, David had great uh, love for the king and realized he was a lost soul. And he had a famous pasuk that he says in response when he hears about the fall of Shaul and his sons. Anybody? Okay, you all need to learn Tanakh, but like really severely, badly. Um, it's really important. This this was Eich Naflu Hagiborim. In English, you say. How the mighty have fallen. That's that pasuk that David mourns the death of Shaul. Shaul actually was um, badly injured, but not mortally so, by the Plishtim. And this, the Tanakh counts arguably as one of the first recorded suicides. Not the actual first. That was probably Avimelech and maybe uh, Avimelech in the, in the times of Shoftim. Shaul uh, asks his arms bearer to kill him. To, because he's uh, uh, well, uh, he asks his arms to kill him. The arms bearer is very reluctant to do so. There's a question: Is it suicide? Is it forced death? Whatever it is, the post came taken up. Shaw was with, with all of his mistakes notwithstanding. Shaw was a tragic figure and a tzaddik. And how in the world could he sanction suicide? That he would give his own life? That he would take his own life? And most of the post scheme are actually pretty harsh. The Beit Yosef, with Yosef Karo, has all shtickle on it, and he says what Shaul did was simply unjustified. Summer Malamet Schus, there's um, the Marshal, Rav Shlomo Luria, the cousin of the Ramah. The Marshal um, explains he's Malamet Schus and Shaul. He says Shaul had compassion for the Jewish people. He was concerned as an injured king that he'd fall in the hands of the enemy. The enemy could do terrible things. The people would go all out to try to save their their tortured king. Thousands of lives could be could be lost in the process, and Shaw wanted to avoid all of that tragedy, and therefore he thought that suicide was a better option. Uh, there, are, there are other discussions around this. Suicide, you should know, is usher. Um, there's an opinion that it's part of Lo Sirtzach, that you shouldn't kill, uh, including yourself. Your life is not your own. Um, that's not the accepted view, but it, it is usher, and in fact, a um, person who kills himself is Chayv Misa. Um, even if he had time, hey, right? Rabbi, that doesn't even make sense. Um, but what it does, I mean, the Ashkafa, of course, is, is, is a powerful one, and it says a lot for the modern mind. Modern man thinks of this world, and secular world at least, he often thinks of this world as his. It's his playground, and his own life is his own to choose what he wants to do with it. That's why the abortion rights feminists can say, keep your laws off my body, because they perceive it as their body. <laughs> And why um, people who have um, who who, uh, who do the surgery to uh, to switch genders, right? They think, well, you know, Shem made a mistake, and they, they identify with a different gender, so they're gonna they're gonna mutilate themselves accordingly, right? It's part of part of this whole mindset of it's mine to do with, with whatever I choose. That up until and including one's own life, we saw a powerful piece last year in the um, in the Chovas Levavos, in which he said that in a sense, somebody kills himself, it's worse than murder because it's the ultimate fear. Hashem gave him life and he's willing to, 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 to say this is what I think of your gift Hashem uh, so the big discussion what Shaul did is uh, debated whether it was uh, whether it could be defended or not but um, if you're feeling this you should be that this is a very rich very important part of Eretz Yisrael very important part of our people our culture Gidona we just passed the Herod, Spr- um, Har- Harod Springs 
Gidon. Another story from this time from Shoftim again. Gidon took on Midian. Josh knows his uh, Shoftim Kolakavod. So Gidon takes on takes on and Gidon, who is not the not, Gidon, also from a very uh, distinguished tribe of Menashe. Uh, Gidon um, was the last man in the world you'd expect to be the leader of the Jews. He himself couldn't believe it when the angel came to him and told him that he was going to be the leader. But he rose to it once he understood that Hashem had called to him. And um, he calls for an army to assemble from the 12 tribes. And thousands upon thousands of, of men assemble. And Hashem says, it's too many. They're going to think when they win the battle that they did it. I only want a select group of 300 men. So Gidon devises a test. He has the men go down in the spring, and you can picture this as we're hiking through the uh, the water right now. This is not perhaps the exact spring, although for all we know it is. We can't identify these things 100%. But um, one of these springs in this region, Gidon devised this, uh, this scheme that he, he tested the men. He said, um, I'd like to see you all um, drink water. Almost all the men present went down on their on their all fours, on their hands and knees, and drank the water up like so many dogs. But 300 of the men who had a little bit more uh, 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 class and, and uh, self-discretion, um, these men instead um, took cups, took some kind of a, of a kli, some kind of a vessel, and leant down, leaned down, picked up the water, and, and brought it up to them. The different Mepharshim comment, one understands the, the Marsha says that the, their drinking from the cup showed basic derech eretz. That as human beings, we always raise, raise the physical up to the spiritual, and not the other way around. We're not, I mean, we try. We're animalistic when we take the spiritual, like our face is the sign. The, the face has most of the sense. Most of the sensory experience takes place in the upper part of the body. Upper part of the body, the, the Kabbalists say, is the most spiritual part of the body. You should not lower yourself to the animalistic. To the, and, and so, that bringing the water up to their face was a was a sign of of, of great self restraint. Um, the Baba Barabi, who survived the Holocaust, you heard story to, stories about him? The Baba Barabi was famous for a number of reasons, um, but one of them was he was so elegant and so re, so refined in his in his manner. Um, they said that even something as difficult to eat as soup, he never lowered his face down to the soup bowl. He always brought the spoon up to his face and not a stain on his tie. He didn't wear a tie, but you know what I mean. Um, the other shot. The other shot is um, those who went down on their hands and knees were a little too quick to do so. It might have, might have, it might have indicated that they had a penchant for idolatry. We also went down on your hands and knees and worshipped the various idols. So Guido didn't want any of those people. He collected his small army of uh, of three hundred men, and he went out went out in the direction we're driving right now towards Beit Shan, which in many places, in many ways, was an entrance to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, you'll see it's a it's a very it's a very open area, easy to cross the Jordan from the other side, and um, he confronted his enemies, and um, you can see the, the people count people notice in this battle a lot of firsts. It's the first time we find in history that the leader, this the 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 general, charges first. He says, "Follow me," instead of sending his troops ahead. Say, "Good good luck, boys. Send me a postcard." Um, it's also the first time that they use Molotov cocktails. He he puts a bunch of he takes a bunch of jugs and puts um, puts uh, torches inside the jugs, and they look more ferocious than they actually are. And the enemy is terrified. He also has the blow the shofar, and the the enemy has the image that um, 
the impression, the false impression that they're that they're being beset by an army of the mil, in the millions, when in fact it's only 300 men who are who are challenging them. The enemy simply turns on itself. Uh, started att- they start attacking one another, and then they flee east in the opposite direction, and uh, Am Yisrael is saved. Uh, really, all all these fights are from Hashem. And Gidon is elevated and, and is a leader for during a peaceful period for Klal Yisrael. So as we're hiking through this water, uh, I just think about these things. I think about it, not only have a good time, but realize that uh, all of this is uh, very, very deep, and very, very rich in meaning, and how privileged we are that we could be here. Right? I, I don't know why Derek never came here before. I, I, I'm going to try to make a case all day long that all these places are gold. Um, and um, people will be very jealous if they knew where you get to, you get to be today. We um, will be in Nachal Kibbutzim soon. Um, it's an open area. It's free. Uh, and those of you who do not want to get wet, you certainly don't. You have not required to. But uh, it's a lot of fun, too. So. You know, the, you know the quality of the rocks? Say it again. You know the quality of the rocks? We're a minute and a half away. We're going to get out. Bring what you want. Here's what we're doing. It's a national park. This is the place. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah. This is the place I said. It's um, the only place like it in the world that is a complete Roman city that's open to the public. You'll see it's pretty spectacular. It's also, it's unique in a, in a bunch of ways. It's a Ro- it was really before Roman city. It's a biblical tell, an ancient mound where people lived from the, di- from the days of Shaul Melech. And um, it's lasted, and it's a place, it's one of two places in Eretz Yisrael that the Romans extended the original city into an expansive, massive, uh, what was called, is one of the 10, what they call the Decapolis, the ten major cities in Eretz Yisrael. They changed the name from Beishan to Skatopolis by that point, but it was the same location. And it's mostly pagan and goyish, but really interesting. You'll see why. And it's instructive. It tells us about the, about ourselves. Part of the chapter belong. Part of the story belongs back in the days of the Tanakh with Shaul Melech and his sons. Um, it continues through Roman history. In the later period, it was settled by the, the by the Muslims. They called it Beisan. Sounds like Beishan, Beisan. Um, and it had a small Jewish population, including somebody who is one of my all-time uh, heroes, really. Uh, his name was Rabbi Shroya Parchi, and I'm going to tell you about him. Um, he was considered the first Choker Eretz Yisrael, the first person to come back. He got to Eretz Yisrael. I'll tell you a little bit of a head, heads up about him. He was exiled with his family from France in 1306. They kicked the Jews out of every country they lived in virtually, and 1306 was the French Jews' turn uh, to be exiled, and they were sent as refugees into wandering until finally seven years later, seven pretty difficult years later, he made it to Eretz HaKodesh, 1313. He comes to Eretz Yisrael, and he settles for the rest of his life, and the place is empty virtually of anybody. A few Muslims, it's under Mamluk rule, a uh, few Jews here and there, um, virtually no roads to speak of, no measuring tools, and he travels up and down and all around, writes writes a great book. The book is called The Kaftor of Ferach. Kaftor of Ferach, one of the all-time classics, um, certainly of, of um, understanding everything about Eretz Yisrael, and um, will tell his story. He lived here, he lived in Bashan, on the Roman ruins. So when we first get it, I'm not, I'm not going to talk too much. We'll um, we'll go, we'll air out, we'll um, take all of our food and eat. If you haven't already eaten your lunch, the rest of us will eat, eat something. Um, use the bathrooms, change. We're not doing any more water and we're hiking today, so change into what you want for the rest of the day. And um, 
we will, after we eat, we'll bench, we'll walk around, and we'll see what our timing is like. We're running a little late, so we may have to skip something, but not terrible. Well, in the post-Roman days, you also have to have water, but we have it easier nowadays. Um, once upon a time, you had to have sweet underground water, we're called aquifers, and that usually existed beneath um, a mound. People lived on a mound also because of the strategic adva um, advantage. If people are coming to attack you, you have the upper ground literally, right? So that's why ancient settlements like Akko and Megiddo and Chatzor, all over it to show you have tells. Um, there's a popularized 1960s fiction book called the, the, the Source by James Michener, where he writes about a fictionalized, but based on reality, um, tell in Eretz Yisrael. This, of course, is archaeological uh, archaeology central, this country, and, and a source of great fascination for people around the world. Christians, uh, not Muslims, Muslims don't have historical curiosity, they have a lot of other scholarship, but this is not one of them, not, not one area they're interested in. Um, and a lot of secular Jews are into archaeology, from Jews much less. Archaeology is arguably the softest of sciences. Um, the, in archaeology, the, uh, the, it's the, uh, the future is said, it's the past that's always changing. You know, they, always are, they, they, they often will de declare things definitively uh, in order to get their dissertation or their PhD, right? Or, you know, to get their, their, their dissertation published. Um, but they don't, it's not a lot of guesswork. It's a lot of guesswork. But there are, there are some reasonable guesses, including their strata. You know how this works on a tell? The lower you go and the strata and the different levels, um, the, the further back in time you go. The strata go all the way back to the early e Egyptian... It's right there. Oh, there you go. They have all the levels um, of the strata. I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not so into archaeology. What I am interested in trying to bring out, there's some really interesting things here that I, I'm going to try to summarize and give you, give you a highlight tour of the important things. So everything starts with the tell. Let me, let, me, let me try to do this uh, like logically and methodically and you'll ask me questions at the end. Um, so the tell, the, probably the most interesting thing that happens on the tell is um, after Shaul Melech has his arms bared, uh, finish him off. Who, what's the Pasuk? Eich naflu agiburim. What does it mean in English? How the mighty have fallen, right? David declares about Shaul. Shaul the, the police team, knowing the Jews, the police team were barbarians, the Philistines. Quite literally, the modern English word is Philistine. Oh, Lerone, he got here after all. Is that Lerone? Oh, is it? Oh, okay, fine, good. I'm sorry, I just saw it briefly because Lerone was trying to get here. Okay, oh, that's Adam? That's, that's Adam? Hi, Adam. Adam Mauricio, what's your, what's your clothes? Okay, so let me, let me not digress. So the. Um, after the police team who were brutish, barbaric, um, they not only killed the king and, his, and, and many of his sons, including um, Yonasan, uh, the tzaddik who deferred to David. Yonasan is in the Gemara Baba Metziah called one of the three great Anvasanim of all history, of the most humble, one of the most humble people, because he said, I know I should be next in line to be the king, but David's greater than I am. And um, so the heads of these great figures were brought to Beit Shan and, and hanged upon the wall as they display a great brute force of the Plishtin, the Plishtin, the Philistines, as their name, they really were Philistine. Uh, that's a term in English for um, uncouth, barbaric. Um, they knew that the Jews took care of each other in life and in death. We honored each other, and they knew there'd be a great spit in the face for them to treat our king this way. Shaul, with all of his mistakes, was a big tzaddik, and he's taken here. Um, from that period, Beit Shan endured as a one of the great centers, and in Greek mythology, it looms large. It's one of the major uh, cities, together with Yafo in Eretz Yisrael, that, that was part of the cosmos of Greek mythology. Dionysius, the son of Zeus, was said to be the, I don't want to say it, small, small, small G, uh, god of, of Beit Shan. 
and, um, and that weaved its way into all their wacky um, legends and myths. The Romans came. The Romans made this one of the um, Decapolis. The Decapolis were 10 great cities around the Roman area in this part of the world. We call the Middle East. They had 10 great cities. Beit Shan was one of the major ones. Why Beit Shan? If you look at the map, um, you see that we're just at the entrance from the desert. It's one of the great portals into Eretz Yisrael. I mentioned the war that Gidon had against, the, against Midian. Midian was just over on that side in what's today Jordan. You can see the mountains of Jordan over there. Oh, what's called Me'ever Liarden. Which tribe is that across the way? Uh, that would probably be more like we're probably north of Ruvain, well into, into God, like our driver. <laughs> Right, Reuben, God, and Chetzeshevet, Menashe. Menashe is a little bit north of here. It might be on the border between God and Menashe uh, in, across the Jordan. And that was a great portal that people came in. And so wherever there's an entrance or the plate of, of travel, you have a lot, you have, you have, um, you're going to have a major city, major, um, a major place of commerce and industry. And so the Romans took over, and that's what you see. The majority of the ruins around Beit Shan, what we will see today, is the Roman city. And I said on the bus that this is indeed um, unique in the world. It's, it's, it's virtually intact as Roman city. You look around, it's extraordinary. Um, much of what you see is original. When it's not original, they, like, they did this kind of thing in Masada and a few other places. You can see a red line that weaves through. Everything above the red line, they built up to give you a picture of what the city was like originally. And everything below is as they found it. The Latin term is in situ. Uh, you say in situ and you impress your friends at cocktail parties, right? It was, this is like in, in the place. This is what they found when they excavated. Um, this was all what we see beneath us. The Roman city was all beneath the earth and it was excavated beginning in 1961. Uh, one of the major excavation um, excavations in Eretz Yisrael. The theater where we're going to end is extraordinary. There are places, you see if you can find them, the acoustics are so great that you can stand in, one, in certain places and whisper and your voice can be heard on the other, other side. Uh, that's how the Romans built. Now, who is who is Rome? Who is Rome Asaph. as far as we can? Esav. Rome is Esav. So Esav is in his own mind, and his descendants were in their own minds. I, I see. You have questions. Save the questions for later. Let me try to give you just an overview. Esav, in his own mind, he's a master of the universe, and the Romans indeed saw nature as evil, and they sought to redeem humanity from the evil of nature by building by building totally self-sufficient cities in which you didn't have to depend on nature one whit, or so they like to. They like to um, delude themselves into thinking. So they worked out all the water needs. It used to be that you had to depend on the water at the foot of the tell. Now they imported water from all around. They built a complex aqueduct system where now you could import. You could build cities now anywhere in the world. You didn't have to depend on a sweet aquifer underground. You could go anywhere you want. They built, they're the first in the world to build an entire civic center. It's right in the middle here. You have all the big buildings. That means that all your needs are right there in the middle of town. It makes a lot of sense. Very convenient. So all, you, all your legal needs, all your business needs, everything is, is, is uh, focused on. You have a major show. central avenue like, like we have in, in, in the old city. You have the Cardo Street. This one they named Palladius Street because it was, they found an inscription. A later settler during the Byzantine period it was called Palladius. It became a Byzantine section, so they named the street for him. There's some pretty interesting discoveries that I'll, I'll tell you as, 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 we, as we move around. Um, Beit Shan then endures into the Arab period. It was called Baisan. Uh, they couldn't quite pronounce Beit Shan. And then there's an earthquake that totally pulverizes um, Beit Shan um, and, and much of Eretz Yisrael in 749. The first Arab dynasty, the Umayyads, were on the way out anyway, but the earthquake 
totally devastated them and all of Eretz Israel, and it led, it led, it paved the path for the next Arab dynasty called the Abbasids to move in. It's the Abbasids that you hear about with the rise of Arab culture in the world, Muslim culture in the world. Um, it's the Abbasids. They're the ones under them. It's uh, a thousand one Arabian Nights. They're the ones who develop music. All the notation for music comes from the comes from the Muslim culture, especially in Spain. Math, numbers, all come from the Muslims. That's all during that period. Um, where are the Jews? So you have Shalom Melech. You have the Jews by implication. The Romans are clearly building a Roman city in Jewish Holy Land. But the Jews, there are Jews who are living here through all these periods, small minorities who somehow managed to, to coexist. It's not an easy existence. I mentioned my hero, um, Astoria Parchi, the Kaftar of Pharaoh who lived here when he comes in 1313. Um, and in the modern era, you have, you have this small Arab village that endures here and the archaeologists come um, and excavate and this is what they see. Um, you can ask questions, I think, who was first? Um, who was first? Somebody had, somebody had something over here. Mordechai, Mordechai was, Mordechai. but Mordechai, you switched your location on me. There you go. Mm. Is this like replica? Yeah. Is this like a generalization or like accurate? This is, I'll tell you, uh, okay, it's a little distorted because it's meant to bring to life what it was once like when, but it's not, it didn't even do that because Beit Sham was massive. It was, a, it was one of the Decapolis, it was a metropolis, which means it spread far beyond. Um, the national park that we see, well into modern day Beit Shan, you could dig under your, under your ground and you could find ruins from here. This is just a guess work of what it was like this in its hill, heyday. This hill, that was that. The hill, the hill that... This seems a lot smaller. We're standing, you, you are here. In other words, where, where, where Grant is right now is more or less where we're standing right now. What do you see? If this looks like it should be bigger, we're going to replicate that. Compared to the size of the house. Correct, correct. Not, it's not to scale. It's not to scale. Yeah, you had something, Daniel. I was going to ask, you kind of mentioned I was facing to see where, where are we standing and what are we seeing on the map? So what we can see from where Grant is, we can see directly in front this whole civic center, Palladius, Palladius Street that leads down, and you can see that side of the hill, the, the, mass, the big hill in front of us. We don't see what's behind it. Yeah? Um, yeah. So what, what strip are those that's Palladius Street. That's 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 in, in over there. Yeah. Are those Colosseums over there? So we might refer to those. There's only one Colosseum that was in Rome, and it was yeah, built with, among other things, relics of the base of Mikdash. The Second Temple had 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 parts of it that were brought back to Rome, and they incorporated in the Colosseum. But they're in the same style. Let me give you a little bit about Rome. As we're looking at this Roman city, the the Romans were idealists. As we said, they sought to liberate humanity from nature. And their goal was um, to create a completely contained life. If you notice, a lot of their structures were built underground. They had massive buildings with dome, dome tops and whole city centers that you could, be, you could have columns that held up um, coverings for the sky. You remember this board? I said this, I've said this in a, in a few different uh, tours, um, how Asav loved to block out the sky. Remember this? Who, know, who knows what I'm about to say? Right, right. So that's, they, they blocked out the sky. They built underground cities. Why? When you look at the sky, what do you think of? Kadosh Baruch right? Um, the Melchemes Gogu Magog we just read about on Sukkot, right? In, in, in a few of the Haftaras, in the Haftarah in the first day of Sukkot, so Chashab is Cholamoid, it's from Zechariah, from Yechezkel, talks about the end of day's war. They're going to be fighting a war of the roofs where they're blocking out a Kadosh Baruch What's our response? Why do we read these things specifically on Sukkot? What's our holy roof? The Schach. The Schach pointedly brings in a Kadosh Baruch They block out a Kadosh Baruch we bring a Kadosh Baruch in. Right, that's very much the Roman worldview. We're going to create, we, we, they felt that they could completely dominate the world. I don't know who's, who was in this discussion, but we were talking earlier today. That is the modern man too. Rome was alive and well in the United States of America. 
at least culturally, the feeling that I'm bigger than, than life. I'm I, the individual, the human being, because I'm a human being. I, therefore, am my own autonomous being. Who needs a Kaddish Baruch Hu? Um, you, you have all kinds of offshoots from this. The idea that um, abortion activists will say, you know, keep your laws off my body. Where you have the whole phenomenon of transgender, where people feel they know better than a Kaddish Baruch Hu, how he molds the human being and creates biological male and female. They say, no, I don't really like the way you did a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to mutilate my genitalia instead. Right? All, all of that is an extension of the Roman worldview that we're in charge. We're the biggest creation, creators in town. And you walk in Beit Shan and punked, like you really see it. It's really come to life. Let's go see. Artifacts in Thousands of artifacts. There's still most of the work though is not on site. Most of it is evaluating many of the sites. This is one of the grandest bathhouse complex in all of Eretz Israel and all of Rome, frankly. Um, Binyamin Preston said it nicely. Um, the Romans built this super, super powerhouse city, really the hub of Eretz Israel. Um, and the way to understand this is that they're transplanting their culture all around the world. Um, kind of like America, kind of like when you go and you, you, ever, you ever stay in a far begotten place and stay in the Holiday Inn or the Hilton or one of, the, one of those hotels that has international uh, branches, right? And then you go and you're in like some place that's anything but America, but you get to your hotel room bathroom, right? And you go get those little cute soaps, right? And shampoos and body oil, and you never use body oil otherwise, but like, ooh, that's so cute, right? Um, right? So th what that is, is, is it's that feeling, it's like the Golden Arches or Coca-Cola. It's it's supremacy. It's asserting. It's asserting. That's the Roman. When in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, the Romans wanted to make the entire world Rome, and they did for for a long spell, for a long spell there. And after the Romans came, the Byzantines took up the same route. And even though the formal nations of Rome and Byz Rome fell, when yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a gradual decline. But it was in the first centuries of the Common Era. Byzantium, Byz Byzantine. This was Byzant. The, the Byzantines, really the, the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the Byzantium. Um, it really took off in Eretz Yisrael from the third century. Um, when did the Byzantine? When did the Byzantine fall? About fourteen fifty-three to the Young Turks. Right, that was when um, Constantinople, the capital of Byzantine, turned into Istanbul. Istanbul. The Jews never liked calling it by either of these names. They didn't like either of these places. They called that city it was a big Jewish city too. Kushta. Kushta was the was the big place. Yeah, that's what we and, and a lot of, a lot of Gedolim were there. Um, so so um, so they they stretch they stretch out and the bathhouse you always whenever you're in a Roman city you always have a bathhouse. What does the bathhouse signify? Who remembers going to the bathhouse in Caesarea? Where else where else do we go? Where else do we see bathhouse? We saw Masada, Sipori we saw right. Sipori has uh, even Herodian. Herodian has has a bathhouse. All of these influenced by Rome. Let's go in the shade and we'll we'll, we'll see some of the we'll see the step in there. Well, Rabbi, they make the so like this, so you know that coming to a bathhouse could be an entire day's, uh, day's preoccupation. It wasn't just for cleanliness, even though hygiene was certainly a part of the point, because you want to keep the body as clean and beautiful as you can. The Greeks, the Greeks started the obsession with the body. The Romans took it to another level altogether. They built what were called first a collidarium, which is a cold room, then a tepidarium, which was the lukewarm room, and then you got into the sauna. You got into the hot room, they heated the coals down beneath these spikes. The spikes held up a lower floor and then they funneled the hot air into, into pipes that came up on the side. You see reasonable, reasonable depictions of life in the bathhouse. You see it was not just to, um, to, to, to clean yourself, but it was a luxuriating experience. You got massages, you got, they had um, ancient cosmetic surgery, cosmetic peels. 
Um, it's where all the Lectures. all the big it's where all the big politicians hung out and po- political deals were made. Business deals were made in the um, in, in in the bathhouse. Um, it was only for the upper aristocracy of the society, um, men, white men. That is the, as the liberals don't like, right? White men, that was what it was. Women were generally, they, they were relegated to the sidelines. They were sub, um, sub-status in Roman society, uh, worse than slaves. Only there for procreation and not much of that either. Uh, that's why Romans didn't, didn't, re- didn't re- recreate themselves. There's some famous misogynist statements in the Roman writings of how, you know, um, what's the Rodney Dangerfield line? He said, take my wife, for example. Please, just take her. Take her, go ahead. Uh, right, it was like terrible statements against women that you have all over the Roman Empire. And you see in these pictures also, not, not, no, no women uh, represented. Yeah. Uh, oh, right, okay, so selling this, I, I haven't read these things in a long time. So it's saying what I said, the Colidarium and the Tepidarium. Uh, they didn't have soap, but they had, they had, they had all kinds of, they, in the Gemara it talks about boris, they had different kinds of abrasive chemical and rock-like uh, cleaners that you used on the skin. Um, they used a lot of oils. Do you ever wonder why of the different afflictions that we're not allowed to do on Yom Kippur, they afflicted themselves, no sicha. What's sicha? Oil. Anointing yourself with oil. Clearly in the pre-modern world, oil, lumba, I guess we use lotions if we do, right? Uh, something like that. But they used, they used olive oil and it was very, apparently very helpful because you can see the, the conditions were kind of uh, raw um, otherwise. Um, the Greek and Roman society took the human experience and elevated it to uh, almost a godly level. That's why, of course, human beings, Caesars, could, be, could see themselves and portray themselves as God's small g. Uh, and um, the way of life, their whole world was so dominant, was so intoxicating. A lot of Jews got involved in this. This is the time, don't forget, that the, with the Jews who were here were often um, assimilated. They were Hellenized. That means that they were either tzedukim or they were simply influenced by the Roman surroundings. You could see the allure. The appeal of it, you know, make this world, since there is no other world from a classic Roman perspective, make this world uh, the end goal. Kind of like a lot of cultures are today. Live for today, there's no tomorrow, right? You only live once, isn't that YOLO? Right? That kind of mentality, it still pervades today. Okay, the, 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 the players are a little bit different, the, the, the geographical regions are different, the values are very much the same. Questions, thoughts? Okay. Yeah, right. We're walking on right now. These are marble floors. Where do you find marble in Eretz Israel? Nowhere. Nowhere. Exactly. They imported from Turkey. Wow. The Turkey. They, they went to. They spared no expense. Right. Why do I emphasize that it's marble and not uh, limestone? Not sand. Limestone is the major rock in Eretz Israel. Also, also, but I, I emphasize the, the nature of the stone because I wouldn't want you to take it for granted. Basically, the Jews have it. Oh no. Column when they came here in 1961 to start excavating. Most of these have been remounted, but all the capital you see at the top is what's called Corinthian capital, very ornate style of Roman architecture. Um, the road is built. You have to realize also, Esau was the master of this world. The Romans extended that. Um, why is the road sloped? The rainwater. Rainwater. Is original, the original floor? Right, it's brilliant. I know, it's brilliant, but it's a brilliant piece of technology we take for granted. Look at the, the signs on the side. They found an inscription to this guy, Palladius, hence they named it Palladius Street. And look at what they imagined reasonably was what this place once looked like. This was a market center. To the right were all the government civic um, buildings. The Senate, the everybody in, in Rome there was a Senate. That here they have all the public facilities, and this this place was 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 with um, was with stores, markets. Wow. In the Mishnah, in the Gemara, in Avodah Zarah, near the very beginning, the fourth Mishnah, the first parak of, of Avodah Zarah, 
It talks about a. Um, it talks about a petach muutar, a crowned, ornate, de- decorated entrance to the stores in Beit Shan, and um, and it says in the Mishnah you cannot go into such a store. What's the problem? When it's decorated, no, no, no. I, I, the hint was, of course, the, the, the Masechta of Odazara. They sold objects of worship. Go and see some of the mosaics and see if you see um, evidence of that. So, indications that they, you know, you're living in, in Roman Empire. You're living in. You hear um, this is shaped. These are all storefronts. The letter it's shaped. They call this a sigma. Sigma is shaped like the letter C, like, or U, a C, right? It's a big C, and they had stores all around, like maps, right? And it's what it, you know what it is. We're walking in the in the ancient equivalent of a modern mall, a shopping mall, a Ben Yehuda, right? You got everything, all your needs taken care of. But that all of this, all of this, Quran, Quran, yeah, exactly. We, we don't appreciate just how much of our lives are Roman. No, like you think about it, a shopping mall focusing on the individual um, decadence as a value, right? Luxuriating in 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 in, in this world. That's what it's all about. That's what it's about th- today, and that's what it was about in the Roman times. The Jews have put up a colossal struggle, and over in, in the course of history, we've not always won. Elevate the individual. Why the theory goes, um, Greece. You can sit. Greece was. You mind the sun? It's impressive. You get a nice Mediterranean uh, bronze. I'm in Greek. Oh no! <laughs> right. No, the Greek ideal of beauty was to be pale. That's what you were in a peasant work the fields. <laughs> so the Greeks, the Greeks were the, the Greco-Roman. You know, the world was Greco-Roman. What was the difference between the two? Not always clear. They all, they clearly overlapped. The Greeks were first, and the Greeks um, probably started their culture because they were an island state. All of Greece were a bunch of islands, and um, people could spread out and live. Unlike most of the hunter-gatherers earlier in earlier um, civilizations where people were clannish, the Greeks were more spread out. When you're more spread out, there's a greater emphasis on the individual. That's why, not coincidentally, democracy became a uniquely originated in Greek um, cultures. And it, it, because democracy places a huge value on the individual. You, individual, get a vote. What is the Jewish view of democracy? Awesome. Not entirely, not entirely, because we have, there's something Amen. democratic about the fact that every Jewish man is obligated to learn Torah. And the women as a ksuva and women as right. Right, right. There are certain things, but but elevating the individual that everybody gets a vote. Are you kidding? You know, you know what's wrong with democracy is, of course, every imbecile gets to vote, right? So the guy who gets elected in power is the guy who's like, you know, most most of the fools, most of the idiots, put him into into power. That's no, that's no, that's no way to govern a nation. <laughs> well, Josh. Um, right, so that's that's what it is. The, the quote that I like, the, the, the best antidote to this, it always sticks in my mind, the Rambam has this great quote um, from the Morn of Uchim where he says, it, we're not democratic. He says, and you have to say the truth, and sometimes the truth is not popular, but it's always true, it's always right. He said, I'd rather say the truth and please one intelligent man, even if simultaneously I displease a thousand fools. Today the whole culture is Roman, it's Greek. Right? What do you have if you, if, how do you succeed on TikTok? Bunch of likes and crap. If you have a lot of, no? Yeah. You have a lot of likes. It's all popularity because all the fools like you. That's the way of the world. Um, what is, I don't know. Some, it's a game, I think, TikTok. Um, so, the Greeks emphasized the individual. They celebrated the mind with new philosophies, with new geometry, with new ways of, uh, new alternate modes of thinking. They celebrated um, the, the, 
we call the the um, Epicurean, Epicurean, right? Uh, actually, remember the the, um, the aesthetic experience in this world, eating and drinking and wearing fine clothes and, of course, intimacy of all of all kinds were all accepted in Greek culture because the individual and his enjoyment of this world were paramount. They were the ultimate value. Uh, they they celebrated the body. That's why in Greek culture they would um, they would walk they around would, nude, they would walk around naked, they celebrating themselves. Really? Anybody yeah. here like to don't don't raise your hand. People who work out in the gym, right? Who like to flex their biceps in the mirror, right? That's an extension of the Greek Roman culture. It's not a Jewish culture. We stay healthy, but we don't look good in order to look good. Yeah. Up until about a hundred years ago, it was an isodiorisa for a man to look in a mirror. Why? It's an easy to erase for a man to look in the mirror. What was the problem? A man should not look like a woman. And it included even grooming yourself like a woman. Only girls would look in the mirror and care what they look like. Now we're a bunch of girly boys. Right? In other words, that's what's happened in the modern century. That, we, that we, we've become... So now it's no longer us. Because now since so many men look in the mirror, so it's no longer us. It's no longer associated with women's grooming. But it's weird. Something's backward. Okay, right, right. Okay, but they celebrated the body for the body. Now, where were the Romans different? The Romans were all that, but with a different emphasis. The Romans, like Aesop, emphasized brute force and power. They were all about power. That's why Rome, more successfully than Greece, set out to conquer the world. And to a certain degree, for a few hundred years, they did just that. They, they took over the entire civilized world and made Rome... Um, not just not just a dominant empire, but it made it the dominant culture in the world. If you weren't, that's why they couldn't tolerate the Yidden. If you weren't Roman like them, what did Rome do as the Romans? If you weren't Roman like them, they saw it as a direct threat. And they couldn't coexist just like Esau can't coexist with Yaakov. And the Jews therefore led a very, very precarious existence under the, uh, under the Roman dominance. But you can see why. Come out here. You have a real vision here. And, and, and use your imagination now. This is what we see what's been recreated. Now imagine that this city actually stretches into the mountains around here and is much more vast than we, can, than we actually see with our own eyes. And imagines the, imagine the full city built up with the full Corinthian, not only the pillars and the, and the Corinthian capital, but that the, the whole arches overhead and the dome-shaped um, uh, um, buildings and bathhouses that populated uh, this entire area. And you really did feel like a master of the universe, kind of like walking down... Um, Walking down Broadway or, or, or uh, 42nd Street in Manhattan. Look up all the skyscrapers. You think, wow, human beings are awesome. Rabbi, what if in like, like 10,000 years they come here and they like there's like two pillars and they're like, this was the Empire State Building. You're right. Right, right, right. <laughs> they made just that. Um, what's really interesting, this is some years later, but I mentioned this earthquake that was devastating all over Eretz Israel. They've had a lot of these earthquakes. This valley that we're looking at, this is, this is Jordan over there, Hari Moab. Um, the valley that separates called the Syrian-African Rift. We've seen some devastating earthquakes. The big one, what was the big earthquake of all time? No, 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 way back when, talking First Temple period. First Temple period, any good history people here? Come on, Danny Schmidt Pines, where are you when I need you? History, think about what... Oh, Netana Lenetsky, boom. Azaria, otherwise known as Uziel Melech. He steps forward and he, he's a righteous king until that point, but he blows it big time. He decides to encroach in the power of the Kohanim and he goes into Africa Tyrus and they say, uh, 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 king, you can't do this. And he oversteps his bounds and Hashem sends an earthquake. The seismologists have studied it. They think they've identified the earthquake. 
that rocked the world in the, in the late First Temple period. But that took place here. Uh, the earthquake of 749 decimated Beit Shan, Scatopolis, this, this location. Um, and they found something really striking. They could date these things. Um, 749 in the Common Era already is a time that they can date with more accuracy with the carbon-14 dating. You go back 2,000 years, it gets very iffy in terms of accuracy. But now we're talking about 1,300 years ago. That's not so bad. They, they found that there was an, probably from this time, they found many of these pillars fallen over from that period. And they found a man's severed hand with coins in it under such a pillar. Okay, so you don't have to be too brilliant to come up with a plausible story. What was going on there? The guy, the, 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 the earthquake was fall, you know, was was making the whole place fall apart. The guy was everybody was running for cover, cover, and what was he thinking? I got to go back and get my cash. And just as he was doing there, boom! You picture the column falling and getting him on the spot. What? You must have been Jewish. <laughs> oh, ouch! What? Uh, yeah, they were from the time period. They were they were accurate in terms of they would also check out in terms of being part of the earthquake. What's that? Uh, absolutely does. 1837 was the big one. What was what was famously decimated in 1837? 1837, Sfas. Irakodis slid down on itself. The four synagogues, the four famous shuls in Sfat, uh, were all destroyed except for famously. The southern wall, what was the equivalent of the Mizrach, the wall facing Yushalayim, each of them stood with the four shuls. The two Arizal shuls, the Sephardi and Ashkenazi, the, um, the Abu Av and the, uh, and the Rav Yosef Kara shul. Oh, right. um, and they were all rebuilt since then. But 1837 was a huge one. Wait, it was destroyed or, or not destroyed? Sfat was, was destroyed. Right? I mean, no, the country was ravaged. Sfat was totally destroyed. The whole, the whole city slid down in itself. The Chassam Sofer wrote about it. He said, Sfat in those days was bigger than life. And to, in many people's minds, because of the Kabbalah and the great, the great charisma of the great rabbis associated with Sfat, it had almost Chas Shalom displaced Yerushalayim as a central icon for the Jews. And the Chassam Sofer said, perhaps this was Hashem's way of bringing it down in size. Sfat is great, Yerushalayim is greater. Don't the, confuse the two. In the Bas Ayin Shul, he told everyone to come to his side of the Shul. Okay. And the other half collapsed. During the Amidah, you mean? Oh, during the Amidah. Yeah. Okay, so, so to, to, Mordechai, to answer your question, most definitively, there have been earthquakes, and they're predicting a big ago. one. They're predicting a big one. That was um, years you now. see in the Navim, you see in the Navim a reference to the Rash Hagadol from the days of Uziyahu from Azaria that we mentioned, the big earthquake. Um, and there's potentially in the future an anticipated earthquake. It's all from a Kaddish Baruch. Right? You behave yourself, you make tshuva, you work on your midos, you be medactic in mitzvahs, you learn a lot, a lot of Torah, finish all of shots and then some. Uh, you're good to go. But, uh, that's, that's, but, but um, the natural world is at the calling of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Look at this week's Parsha. It's all over this week's Parsha. Everything screams out praise of Hashem. If you don't follow Hashem's rules, He makes grand cities like Beit Shan topple. Come. No, I think no, because it's a Roman city, anyways. Yeah. No, we're not. We, it was in the near the end, near the maybe the last third of the uh, of the of the period of Bais Rishon. Wait, how big was that earthquake? It was massive enough to be felt. The Gemara describes it in all four four hundred um, Persian miles of Eretz Yisrael. It was it was it was the big one. It's referred to in multiple Navim. When we said in Kedush, we're going to say in Kedush in a few minutes. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. We talk about the Rash Hagadol. That's a reference to that great earthquake. The Rash is an earthquake. Wait, so what were you um, saying? This oh. is this is the this is where they found the man's hand. Where? This is the column that fell over. One of the columns. What? Um, where you? Where Mordechai and uh, and David and and the tunnel going into was actually a site of idolatry. 
<laughs> um, what's pretty interesting about it is, in, 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 um, Natan will have the good intuition of leaving, <laughs> right? But you, you don't have to. It's a destroyed place, so um, it's a horva, so we're happy about such things. But they, they maintain their idolatry. What was really interesting about the places is they were empty. I mean, they sometimes had a statue up there, but there was otherwise, there was, you know, like there was nothing going on there. Um, Lots you know, about to go there now. Right. The, 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 the pagans went and they worshipped there, but they did all kinds of un- unspeakable things. Uh, and what did they do? What didn't they do? Uh, what, 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 was, what was, I mean, some of, it, some of it was just stupid, like the Merculis. What did they do with the Merculis? They threw stones. They threw stones at their idol. Uh, more infamously, the Baal, the Baal Peor. They used its potty on it. The Baal Peor, what did they do? They used the potty. Like a little, like a little, little thing they defecated. They, they did number two. Yeah. Right, um, much idolatry, much idolatrous practice included. Much idolatrous practice included um, included uh, the institution. The, the Torah singles us out and prohibits it. The Kadesh and the Kadesha. What are those? Male prostitutes and female prostitutes. That was central in all idolatry, uh, idolatrous practice. That human sensuality was uh, was used. They wanted to appeal to the masses. What are you going to do? You appeal, it's like Hollywood. They appeal to the lowest common denominator of human uh, of human behavior, and they get your interest this way, right? So this is this is idol worship central in the center of town in Beit Shan. Hey, was there more colas on our way here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you saw that too, right? I was, I was wondering. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think our closest is a beautiful time. Yeah, right? And if you did, the Israeli antiquities authorities would claim it as theirs. Everything by law. If they find out, if about you find it. an antiqu- if they find out about it, antiquities belong to them, and if, if it, it's 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 considered a crime if you if you take it home. Oh, okay. <laughs> what that? about? They said so. <laughs> because it could kill you. That's why. Well, the inter- they have to tell you. Yeah. Right, what are the chances we take one of these pillars to Dara? Oh, that'd be so great. Oh, that'd be a high <laughs> that'd be great. That'd be well, great. What about you know? in Shiloh, where those pottery have got left on the Exactly. Yeah, let me talk about. Let me talk about you here. Some Torah. There Have a seat. We'll talk about some Torah. Part of the um, water complex that the Romans built that created, um, that, that made the ability for them to move away from the biblical era tell and build a whole modern um, city. We stretched out, they built this, this, this is part of the aqueduct system where the water passed and um, the water could saturate the city, fill all their water needs, and where also did the, water come from? the um, they're, they're underground springs. Oh, the underground springs. Um, the, yeah, yeah. They can also yeah, they can also channel up from the they have they have pumps they can channel up from the Jordan River, which is just below, just below us as well. The crops are out in that direction, um, and of course you have to have a major city. You have to have a major agricultural base. Yidden were here now. Cut. New ch- change change of topic. Gemara Chulin Vav Amud Aleph and Base. Who knows it? Anybody learned Chulin before? Vav Amud Aleph and Base. When they came back, we talked about their different borders in Eretz Israel. Right, Yoshua bin Nun comes in and delineates certain borders of Eretz Israel. There's Kedusha until the very end of the first temple period. Then Bitla Kedusha, the, the Babylonians destroy the first temple. The Jews are carted off to captivity in Bavel. They come back, come back in different integrals. The Kates Bavel's Rubavel, they come back to Shivat Sion, Hayinu Kachomim. Uh, we come back, years, then right? Ezra and Nehemiah return, and then we rebuild the second temple. This period is called the Ole Bavel. Ole, those who come up, make Aliyah from Bavel, and they reestablish Kedushin Eretz Yisrael under Ezra. Sugi and Gemara and Kedushin. 
Um, why do you need to reestablish Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael? Why do you need to reestablish? Sorry, I talked too fast. Uh, why do we need to reestablish Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael? No practical reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of mitzvahs to be kept. If there's no Kedusha here, so Trumas and Maestros and the Shemitah year, uh, many, many of these mitzvahs that we keep um, are not relevant. It's only when you have Kedusha that's established. Big topic in the Gemara. How do you reestablish it? Um, you have to declare it. You have to do it with the Sanhedrin, and they had prophecy. There's the very end of prophecy that established it as legitimate. How do we do it nowadays? We're waiting for Mashiach to come, and Eliyahu Novi's going to guide us. Oh, when Ezra, Ezra, who uh, the consensus view is a machlokus in Megillah, but Ezra was he Malachi? Was he not Malachi? Most say he was. If he was Malachi, he's one of the last three prophets. Who are the last three prophets? Uh, Last three prophets, Nevim, of all time. Zechariah, Malachi, and Haggai. The last three. So Malachi may have been Ezra. Ezra reestablished the Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael, except for a handful of cities. He left out... I mean, know this? It's really big time. This This is an important thing. He left out Caesarea, Kisrin it was called. Caesarea, that area. He left out Ashkelon. Uh, He left out a place called Kfar Tzemach. He left out um, Beishan. Why did he leave this out? It was a chesed for poor people during the Shemitah, during other times. If this was not technically Eretz Yisrael, it wasn't subject to many restrictions. They had an easier time of uh, getting handouts, of not being wor- not worrying about if, if, if certain produce has Kedusha Shvis, as we know from the Shemitah year. It's a little complicated. And it made it a little easier to give money to the poor. So, um, so, th- so they left these parts of Eretz Yisrael, just a few, six total corners of Eretz Yisrael that didn't have Kedusha. Beishan being one of them. So technically in Beishan, you're not subject to many of these restrictions. Cut, fast forward. 1313, who moves here? Your guy. My guy, what's his name? (coughs) Rabbi Storia Parchi. Rabbi Storia Parchi moves here. He's a refugee from the French expulsion. Rabbi Storia Parchi. We don't really know his name. Some speculate his real name may have been Rabbi Yitzchak Cohen. Did you write anything? A bunch. He wrote the famous book, Kafta Beferach. It was a major book, a unique work. Were there people um, living here then? Historia Parchi, if you l- listen to the words, may have been his own particular pseudonym, but it might have been Ish Tori, Ish, a man who is Tori. What is the tour? A tour guide. Right? Oh. Tour guides tour the land. Who, where do we get this word from in, in Parshish Shlach? Oh, yeah, the Latour to Aretz. The word tour in English comes from the Hebrew word Latour. Okay, uh, this is not a new profession, right? And Ish Tori, the man who tours the land, Haparchi, because he came from Florence, in uh, Florence, which means flowery, in, uh, in the southern area of Provence in, in uh, France. Um, and that's, that's uh, Astoria Parchi came to Eretz Yisrael. His purpose was la, um, to imbue la shrish bakora. He's such poetic. View, uh, I'll tell you, I'm a really big fan. I, I gave this, I ran this tour guide training course. And at the end of the course, I had to stand and give the commencement speech for all of my graduating tour guides. And I gave a biography of the Kaft of Aferach because I said today, he's such a role model. He's such an inspiration. What he did, we're kind of modern religious tour guides are kind of walking in his footsteps. He comes to Eretz Yisrael. And what's going on in Eretz Yisrael in 1313? Not much. It's sparsely populated. It's filled with, um, with corrupt backwards mamelukes. Few Jews scattered here and there. Not much. He comes in and he said, I'm going to... Take, he has such a poetic language. He said, La Shrish Bakora, the purpose of my book is to imbue in the reader, to root in the, in the reader the love of Eretz Yisrael and all of its details. 
all the cities, all the fantastic vistas. Uh, the Nachal Kibbutzim that we just we just went in, and, and Kesaria on the beach, and Yushalayim Yerkodesh in Hebron. To, to imbue in us this great love of Eretz Israel in detail. He said it's also to take the rust, the chaludah was his lashon, the rust of all the mitzvahs that for arts. If we don't know where the locations are, we don't know where Beit Shan is, we don't know exactly how, where we're exempt or where we're obligated in keeping certain mitzvahs. So he actually is one of the first, earliest modern sources, modern in the 14th century at least, one of the sources that we have today that tries to trace the borders of Eretz Israel. He tries to locate the original cities. He identifies flora and fauna, uh, plant and animal life from around there. It's Israel. It's a phenomenal work. He did it uh, when there were virtually no roads. He travels around. He has incredible discoveries. He said in those days when he was here in the 300s, there was no Kosal Maravi. No access. It was all covered with Muslim buildings and debris. The place that they could go, the only way is that the Jews who went there, they dive in by the eastern side. Shana Gimel. We'd have by the eastern side of the, uh, of, yeah, we'd have yeah, Mincha there by, by the eastern side. Yeah, yeah right. Or maybe it's Shana Dalit only? Yeah, it was only Shana Dalit. Okay. Yeah. The Muslims know it existed. Oh, right. we did also, we'd have it on the other side? Okay. No, 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 no. On the eastern side of the, of the Temple Mount. That's where he'd have He said you couldn't get into the coastal area. It was, it was covered up. Couldn't get there. Rabbi, did the Muslims even know about it? They like, knew this was a wall that was important? Which? The coastal? That's an, ask me a different time, different discussion. Let me let me get too far afield. Um, so uh, he comes and he identifies, he says, this is Beishan. It's a biblical Beishan. He says, um, he also identified the last site we're going to, the house of the Shunamis. And he says, definitively, he describes it. It seems to be the same place that he describes in the 1300s. Um, and um, he says in Beishan, that interesting minag, even though technically the Gemara, he acknowledges, says it's exempt from Trumos and Maestros, the minag of the Yidden, the few people who lived here, was nevertheless to take Trumos and Maestros. Probably, he doesn't explain, but probably because even in places neighboring, like across in the Jordan area, the Jews historically lived there, kept the mitzvahs of Tullius Pirates. Why? To stay in practice. Because they were so close to Eretz Israel, it's just a matter of time. Obviously, everybody's going to live here sooner, hopefully, rather than later. And so they want to stay in practice so they could do these things, all the Rabbanim without necessarily a bracha, right, with Hashem and Malchus, but they, but they were mafish, chumas, and maestros in his days, in Beit Shan, he writes. Um, how, do we, how does he know that this is Beit Shan? He accepts the Arabic names. Beisan. He says, come on. It's in the right location. Everything adds up. It's probably biblical base, um, Beit Shan. The Chazonish is among the other the views in the other other uh, opinion. He says, we can't take Arab names as a proof that these places are really authentic like they were back in the day. Lamai Naf what's the difference between the two positions? It's a serious machlokus in Allah till today. Yeah, right. All these agricultural laws. Do you keep them or do you not keep them? Right? You accept Arabic names as biblical sites. The, um, when the Israelis came, when the archaeologists came, they took it as a given that if the Arabs called the place Ir Samis, then clearly it was... You know this place? Some of you just, some of you are just there for Shabbos, no? Beit Shemesh. Beit Shemesh from the Tanakh. There are loads of sites like that that people rely on because of their Arabic names. Now, it's reasonable. Probably the Arabs who once upon a time settled in these places were taking the names of the places and renaming them. Um, biblical Shrem... The Romans wanted to destroy every every vestige of Judaism, so they named it New City. How do you say New City? Neapolis. Neapolis. The Muslims notoriously cannot do the P. So they turned it into Nablus. So that's probably the same place. Right? Probably Biblical Shechem. Uh, but the Chazanish wouldn't accept that Lohalacha. No? What did he say? He said you have to you have to use other material, otherwise we don't know. You have to be machmir basafik. You have to be you have to be strict in doubt. Uh, when in doubt. Um, so you know, you're here. 
I don't know if this. I'm trying to bring this to life a little bit. Like I, I read the Kaftam Beferach. I get such kishmak from it. Uh, he was such a hero. He went around. He was like the first tour guide. He went around trying to score, to score. And you have to realize there were no roads. He traveled up and down and all around. Do you know that there's probably no shas in Eretz Yisrael? This is a century before the printing press hit the Western world. Um, you know how we know there's, that almost certainly he had no shots at his disposal? He knew, by the way, he knew Bavli Yerushalmi, he knew Rishonim, he knew Gaonim and Rishonim. He quotes the Rambam and the Rashba and the Ritva, um, Mamish, everything by heart, and we know that he probably didn't have a safer. It was all committed to memory. Why? He makes a few mistakes. And they're the exact kind of mistakes you would find from somebody who basically remembers it, but every now and then misses a word here and there. Right? That's the, uh, that's, that's the Kaptev Affair. So he's an extraordinary individual, totally idealistic, um, who remembers at the beginning of the year I told, I told the parallel story of, of, of another Gadol who comes uh, all, very much on his own initiative because he's filled with Ira Shemaim and a love of Eretz Yisrael and a Kaddish Baruch Hu to come and re-explore Eretz Yisrael no in the 19th century a figure named Yehoshef Schwartz comes he's a contemporary of Shimshav Hirsch. he's very much cut from the same cloth it's like out, you know, this individual comes and he, he's in love with Eretz Yisrael and he wants to rediscover it for himself read up about him as well um, so you're going in the area, almost certainly Katar Verach walked in the places that we were walking, and he lived here, and he was Mafish Trumas and Maestros here without a bracha. And, uh, and today, when we, you know that in the modern day, we don't have so many books about these important areas of halacha. Um, the first books written, do you know, in the modern era that, that actually write about the halachas of Peya and, and Bikurim and all these different halachas we keep in Eretz Yisrael was? Who is it? Uh, Rav Chaim writes a lot. Rav Chaim Kanievsky wrote, he wrote Der Hamuna, very important book about the borders of Eretz Yisrael. But, but a couple hundred years ago, a student of the Vilnagom um, named Rav Yisrael of Shklov wrote the Pasa Shulchan, who's one of the, one of the cutting-edge books on, this top, on all these topics in Alocha, and he draws heavily from the Kathar B'Ferach. Um, a, a, few hundred years, a few decades later, the, the Aruch HaShulchan, Rav Yechil Michal Epstein, who was getting the Mishnah Burah, the Aruch HaShulchan, right? So he writes something called the Aruch HaShulchan HaAsid, about the future, because the Am Yisrael is coming back to Eretz Yisrael, and we've got to figure out how do we keep these laws, again. Anybody remembers the story, not time for now, but anybody remembers the story about the Shemitah controversy in Tarmad in 1888-1889? Yeah. You know, Am Yisrael is coming back to Eretz Yisrael, are we going to keep the Shemitah, are we not keep the Shemitah here? Um, we're talking about um, right now in the store. Who's in the store talking about like those little, those, those obnoxious yellow uh, signs on all the potato chips? Hetem Echira. Lefi Hetem Echira. This is an ongoing issue. Do you keep the Hetem Echira? Are you sure? Do you know what it is even? Right? These are, these are dynamic issues. Am Yisrael's coming back to Eretz Yisrael and it's not a Pasha Zach because we're not all holding in Shem's Torah. Right? These are issues that the Chavit Ferch dealt with and we're dealing with today. Yeah. Suffolk de Rice of the Hummer. We're strict on de Rice. Um, Trumas and Meisters, Bismana Zeh, since the Second Temple, are, are under abundant obligation. Yeah. So, so what, where are we? We're right in the center of town. This is right where they broke away from the uh, from the tell, from the old view. But this is where they had the main center. They staged the main ritual of worshipping the idols um, all along here. That was the store center. This is the civic center right behind us. We can go around and we're going to see a couple more sites. Um, yeah, and then we'll see the theater and we'll exit then. Yeah. This place is destroyed and the earthquake in seven, like 749, majorly what, damaged. Wouldn't have been rebuilt. Um, it was destroyed as a full city, but much of what you see managed to survive. What I'm saying is like broken pillars. Like the Byzantine was a powerful empire. They didn't rebuild. They just like people lived here. 
people managed to live on the ruins, but hardly in a spectacular way. The Arabic basin, Arabic basin was uh, was was lived in by a bunch of you know Arabs who lived a very Spartan kind of existence. Um, there was a big battle in the War of Independence here, and they all took off uh, and they left went across the Jordan River and haven't been back. Um, they left, like many of the Arabs, assuming that the Jews uh, would, were certainly doomed, did not have a chance against the many, the 22 um, Muslim nations that were gunning on little Palestine and assuming that they would come back and repopulate their places. Many of them are sitting in refugee camps in Jordan today, expecting to come back to their homes around this area in Besan, Beit Shan. Yeah, good, let's walk. Over outside the uh, confines of the National Park, you see remnants of what was the amphitheater. That means two halves make a whole of a full theater, um, just outside uh, with trees around it um, before the, uh, the antenna. Um, you look down beyond there, you see the Jordan Valley. In the middle of the valley, you can't even make it out. It's so small is what was once the magnificent Jordan River, which is today more like the Jordan Trickle. Um, that was cut off because in 1953 they built the Deganya Dam to, uh, to shore up the water for the Israel's national water carrier. And then you see over um, the Jordan River in the mountains there, the Hari Moav, which uh, rise sharply. Um, that's where biblical God and biblical Menashe, we're probably looking at the border somewhere between the two. Uh, today's country of Jordan so was called Me'averly Yardin, which is almost Eretz Israel in Kedusha and intensity, but not quite. Yeah. That's right. It used to now, be the entire, that entire valley used to be the Yardin? No, not the entire valley. No, no, no. There was a river, though. There was a river. The valley makes up the Syrian-African rift that I talked about before with this big continental divide. What's very interesting is the geologists study... The, watch, for, watch me for a second. See my hands. Uh, what were probably mountains that were flush one with the other um, were shaken apart. That's why and a valley was created... And they probably went like this, in which the right side, the eastern side, shifted north and the southern side shifted south. Why do they think that? Because they find fossil records in which this side, well in the north, matches up but perfectly with this side in the south. Got that? So that the mountains were once together and the earthquakes collectively made them split apart. When you're along this continental divide, obviously you're more prone to earthquakes like anybody been in California. Right. I once was telling this uh, to one of my tourists and she got really upset with me. And I said, it's not my fault. <laughs> okay, thank you. She was a little shaken up then? She was a little shaken. Good, touche. Touche. Up on the top of the tell. You can imagine. I mean, this is... Now we're really back in antiquities. Now, our, the archaeologists will talk with a deep voice and lots of authorities if they know what they're talking about. The further back in history you know you go, the less you know. Uh, the more they're guessing, the more the carbon-14 dating starts to become less and less and less authoritative within a large margin of error to the point that it's almost irrelevant. Um, but we can conjecture here that this was the place where they took the ruins, the heads, the capitated heads of royalty, of Shaul and his righteous sons, Yonasan included, and hanged them up as a display of grandeur. Shaul Melech then, met his end here. Uh, he was, he's considered in the end of the Gemara in Sukkah, one of eight princes among men. That's how, that's how his uh, stature is in Chazal. He's an example of how you have to, if you just read the Tanakh, like many modern tour guides mistakenly do, they carry on a, a Tanakh and they're just reading it chapter and verse, you're not getting the story, you're not getting it properly, you don't understand anything. If you just read the, the Tanakh's version, who wrote Zephyr Shmuel? Shmuel himself. Shmuel. 
himself. Schmoll's version tells you the superficial story, but it doesn't get to the kishkas and what really happened. You'd get a negative impression of Shaul. Chazal, who are critical, the oral tradition, gives you the entire dimension of the man, and they understand that he was a huge tzaddik, a flawed tzaddik. He makes mistakes. Uh, keeping Agag, the king of Amalek, alive was the most famous one, but it was not the only mistake. Uh, he also didn't obey Shmuel, who told him to pause and not offer a korban, but he didn't wait, and he made other mistakes. Shmuel said his days are numbered, um, but he tried, and he meant well, and he, did, he was a big Baal Chesed. He uh, gave of his wealth to the poor, he gave to Hachnas' Kala, and uh, he met a dire end, but enjoyed a... Chazal assure him, actually Shmuel and Navi himself told him, at the end of his life... He comes, he gets a vision that things are, things are looking pretty bad. He inquires, this is a big question, whether he does, if this was okay, what he does, he inquires of the dead, necromancy, which is an Isidiraisa, so some say, Rambam says it was all a dream. Go look at that sugi and see what was the right uh, shot. Whatever it is, he summons Shmuel, and Shmuel tells him, good news and bad news. Tomorrow you're going to be with me. So the bad news is clear, right? He's going to die soon. The good news, though, the good news, of course, was he's going to be with him. I think Shaul gets a grand place in Olam Haba. And that's why you need to see the whole picture. You only get that when you learn Chazal. Those of you who are hopefully after today, after learning a lot of these biblical sites, we talked about Devor and Sisra, we talked about uh, Navos and Achav and Izevel, we talked about Gidon fighting the Midianim. We'll talk in a moment about the Shuna, the, 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 uh, the, the grand, the Tzedekis, the Shunamis, and the visiting prophet, the Gadolador Elisha Navi. Um, all these figures, once upon a time, were um, in people's minds, they were vivid, clear, well-known stories. They populated their imaginations like Walt Disney does in our minds, right? In other words, we've been, we've, been, uh, we've been corrupted by the Western culture, much like the Romans corrupted the Jews back in the day, and we should go back to our own roots and reconnect with the likes of Shalom Melech. Let's just go to the other side, and I'll point out a couple things that we can see from the other side of the mountain here. And again, this is a tell, a biblical tell, which means there are layers of civilization all the way down to the bottom. It was a city in the Torah. It was one of the Sheish Are Mikla, one of the six, one of the cities, uh, cities of refuge. Um, it was in the region of what was called Bashan. Today, in the region of Golan, you can go find Alone Bashan, Bashan Bagolan. They got it all backwards, the modern Israelis. But this is what they do when they try to identify ancient sites. You see the Hermon mountain range, Dan. In the, in, the, in the Tanakh, you often saw the expanse of Eretz Yisrael was, was described as from Dan to Beersheva. These are the biblical borders and much of the borders, the central heartland of Eretz HaKodesh. Here is the Jordan River that comes, that starts by the Kinneret and feeds down into the Dead Sea, the Yamamelach. Right? And today, again, we said it's a tiny trickle because the Jordan Dam um, keeps much of the water in the uh, Sea of Galilee and they pump the water by Israel's national water carrier. It goes down and actually saturates much of the land down into the Negev until uh, today, but that's at the expense of something. Back to my hero, the Kaft of Aferach. He's a great piece. He argues with previous Rishonim who try to identify the Yarmuch River. Yarmuch is a biblical river. Go look up Parshish Chukas and other areas where we read about it, and they place it further north, further south. He said, 
All they have to do is come to Eretz Yisrael. That's his Lashon. He says, just come to Eretz Yisrael. And you can see with your own eyes that the Yarmuk goes down in the south of Menashe and it feeds into the Jordan River. All you had to do was come and see it for yourself. And he did. He came and he saw and he recorded his, his findings. Uh, and this is, again, one of the first books on record to record all these places. And it's very much Lamaisa in Halacha. You can claim your own rights to uh, immortality, to having a legacy um, for the Jewish people when you learn Halacha and you teach Halacha and you write Sfarim. And uh, they're of use to Klai Yisrael and permit them to keep mitzvahs properly. What else can you see? Um, you see where Yeshiva is. Here's, here's Yerushalayim. Just eastward is Jericho, the lowest city in the world. The lowest, the lowest city in the oldest city in the current um, continuously inhabited city in the world um, in the lowest point um, below sea level it's 492 meters below sea level the lowest point on earth right and that's where the Dead Sea is this is the lowest road on earth therefore the 90 and you can take the 90 north um, and goes through, the, goes, goes through <laughs> the uh, what is it where's, where's the, the light rail, rail? Where's is that the yellow one yeah not the yellow line um, yeah, and then you go to Beishan. Other things in the area, Rehov is interesting because they found, anybody been to the Israel Museum? Yeah. They have this in the Israel Museum, one of the important finds they have in the mosaic floor of an old synagogue in Rehov. Jews were living all over the country in Talmudic period. They have a description of what's called the Bryce at the Tchumim. We have a few uh, versions of this. We have this in, let's say, uh, in the Yushalmi in Shviz. In the Seches Shviz, we have the what's called the Bryce at the Tchumim, the last, most authoritative delineation of the borders of Eretz Yisrael, relevant till today. And there in the mosaic, dating back to Talmudic period, is the oldest known uh, fragment of the Talmud. And the original today is standing, a massive thing, you can't mistake it, it's, on, it's mounted on the wall, this old mosaic of the, uh, of the description of the Bryce at the Tchumim from Rehov, just south of Beit Shan. Um, you see Israel, remember I described the Jezreel Valley with Navos and his vineyard and Achav and Izevel. You see the Shomron for the south of there, the capital of the, uh, the city of uh, the, the, the Mamleches Israel, the northern kingdom, the city of Shechem. We just described Betel, Yushalayim, all biblically central places. One thing that becomes clear, this is a biblical map, obviously. You see how today the Arabs get all the goodies. Right, and it was the central heartland, this big mountain region that, that cuts through Eretz Israel was really where much of the Tanakh takes place. And many of the great stories are here. And today we have less access to many of them because the Arabs are here. Uh, it's a sign of our own sins, right? We should have access to this. And you see Philistia, the police team, where, where their, their main base was on the coast. Who famously toppled the pillars in, in uh, of the police team? Shimshon Agibor, right? Shimshon. They, but he was not the last one. The, the police team were our perennial enemies through the through the Tanakh. Was that okay? Uh, what else? You see, you see. Um, what, how can you identify? Oh, you could see a bunch of Ari Mikla. What are the other Ari Mikla? You see. Kaddish, very good. Kaddish, Kaddish, where Binyamin Preston is leaning right there. That's in Naftali, right? What's in the center of Eretz Yisrael proper? Shechem and Ephraim. And what's the southernmost of the Ari Miklat? Hebron in Yehuda. Across the way in Binyamin, you don't, they don't have it here. It's Betzer. Um, in Gilad, they have Yavesh Gilad, or Gilad, which is, uh, which, is in, um, which is in Gad, and Golan Babashan in the north. Other questions here? What are we seeing out here? Yeah, so we're seeing more of the Jordan Valley. You can see the lower reaches, the Golan Heights. And this is Jordan, and just further out of our purview is Syria. Uh, you'd be hearing explosions if you were closer. Um, right around the corner and out of our view as well is the most spectacular Crusader castle that we're not making today, but maybe another time, this Kochavi Yardin Belvoir um, that um, has a little bit of Jewish interest, not much, but does talk about the Crusaders, which is a slice of our history. No, no, no. We're, um, and Svat is, is far north of Svat. 
um, wouldn't be on a biblical map because Tzfat's only been um, important for us for the last um, few hundred years. Tzfat's is just near a biblical Chatzor over here. We're, we're way down here, so we, there's a long way to go. You wouldn't see Tzfat from this point. Um, what is across the way is Israel's first, um, the modern, in, in 20th century, electronic plant, Nahari, uh, what is it called, Naharaim it's called. Uh, they have all, oh, you know, we went there. Yeah. Shana Gimel. Yeah. Yeah. Shana Gimel, remember, remember with Birthright? Yeah. We went to that electrical plant that's right across the way here. And I asked, I said, I want to go to Beisham. They said, no, we got to do Zionist history, so we're going to do that instead. It was really boring. Everybody hated it. Huh? Yeah. We got a Birthright during, during um, two years ago. Um, everything shut down because of COVID. And um, Birthright had a problem. They had justified their existence because they couldn't give away their money. They have all, they have all this money for rich men to give away. Michael Sidon's money, right? So <laughs> they had a good job. They turned all the yeshivas and seminaries that were anyway in Eretz Israel, and they said, hey, we'll give you free trips. And that way we could justify our existence and you guys get free trips. And we said, hey, we'll do it. Um, so we got we got a week on Birthright. and we, But we had to do all their like propaganda stuff. We did a few nice things. You were able to switch it. I switched up as much as I could. I went, I went to try to kosher it as best I could. And even so. Um, okay. Oh. <laughs> I, was like, I, was, I was going to yeah, say like propaganda. Like yeah, they have a certain message to give across. What? That's not a Torah-oriented message. Uh, I can imagine. What, what, what that we didn't go to the is a whole digression we may have another. Um, they had rocks and such, and they would they would do so. And this was yet like a bathhouse, another opportunity for social interaction, public retreat. I remember on the used to I had this like. Um, this is the oldest, the first of the ancient theaters that was excavated in Eretz Yisrael. As I said, in certain parts, the acoustics are uncanny. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the demonstration. Very good. Oh, yeah. Okay. How about even a Derek song? Right? Okay. Um, it's a little bit of a theater. The theater was definitely a Roman invention. The whole idea of entertainment, you know, the Gemara Novodazara also outlaws Jews going to the theater, to the Kirkosaus, to the circuses, to the, to the gladiator fights, where the Romans used to, used to revel in blood sports and, and other kinds of um, behemish, other kinds of animalistic activities. The theater was a place of comedy, of drama, of um, where they actually paid the citizens of the city to come to the theater. Why? They wanted to spread their culture and they inculcated, they spread their culture in the citizens by having you come and be enamored of their great dramas. They are a foreshadowing of our world very much when you see guys mesmerized by their smartphones, by walking around watching YouTube videos, by watching movies and, uh, and, 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 and the like. That's, a, that's an extension of the Roman theater culture and it's every bit as pernicious and problematic today as it was back in the day. You got brainwashed by the Roman theater and today, whoa, listen to the acoustics, right? You get brainwashed by the Roman theater and you get brainwashed, don't think otherwise, when you're watching your videos. When you're listening to a love song, for example, you're listening to the Western pagan views on love where the whole message is you make me happy. In some shape or form, in some kind of a lyric, they say that I love you where the emphasis is very much on the I because if you don't cut it anymore, if you're no longer making me happy, well then baby, you can leave, right? That's the usual, that's the implication of the love song where the root of the Hebrew word for Ahava is 
Hav, which means to give. It's the polar opposite of the Roman and Western way. We say Western civilization, we're really just saying the Roman civilization of, of thinking of things. And if you think you're not brainwashed by these things, if you think that Shalom Bais uh, is not in trouble today in nice Jewish homes, uh, you don't know what's going on today. We're deeply influenced and it's not to our benefit. Uh, so the, you're coming to a place like this, it's like a, you're going in antiquities, but you start realizing there's tremendous modern relevance here. Uh, so since, since they used to sing pagan songs and indoctrinate people into their idolatrous ways, let's sing a nice uh, Jewish song.
Anyway, I was learning a song. Here, I'm fine. I'm fine. We should, we should, we should be the a story of Parchi, he identified it as the location where the, the great lady, the Shunamis, did her Achnasas Orchim. She hosted people. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, they, she hosted um, a whole wide range of, uh, array of different people, including the great Elisha Hanavi, who did more miracles, double the miracles, than his own Rebbe. Who was his Rebbe? Eliyahu Hanavi. And among the great miracles, she didn't have any children. She and her older husband had lived life doing all this chesed. They didn't have any babies. And Elisha promised she would. She said, don't. She said, a famous pasuk. She says, don't distress your maidservant. She said, I don't deserve any special offering. She has a very famous book. She says, I dwell among my people. I don't need any special handouts or offerings. He said, no, you're a righteous woman. Hashem will arrange it. And indeed, Hashem makes it so that she has a baby or the, the baby is born. Because I'll say it's Chavakuk, one of the 12 prophets that has a short book in the uh, what's called the, uh, the, the Treasar. And... Um, the boy is out in the field one day and he says, Roshi, Roshi, his head hurts him. He runs in and he dies. And she said to the, comes back to Elisha, she said, I told you, you know, it's one thing never to have a child, but to have a child and then to bury a child, she said, is a great tragedy. And so Elisha arranges for yet another one of his great miracles, all through Chaz De Hashem. And he does, a, he does a, an act of Tchias like his Rebbe. All of his miracles were like his Rebbe's miracles, doubled. Right, Elisha, uh, Eliyahu had done a miracle. He revives a dead boy. Who, Chazal say who that dead boy is? The Ben Atzarfis? Yonah Ben Amisai. Anavi, Yonah. We just read about on Yom Kippur. Right? Okay, so um, why why this Tchiyas Amesim? Tchiyas Amesim, um, the Gemara in Tainis, the beginning of Tainis talks about this. It's a, it's a, it, right? It shows that, right, they're, they're very good. Eitan. The boy um, that Elisha revived was Yonah? Revi- he revived two dead people. Elisha doubled his Rebbe's, so he actually, his dead body revived another body while it was being buried, right? It's a whole, a great story. You have to learn all this. It's so, among other things, it's fun and interesting, right? People, people read these nutty, stupid science fiction novels, right? You don't even know your own backyard. You don't even know the Tanakh. Um, the Stifle Gaon held that the people came here, it would immensely help fertility. Um, from the 1980s, it's been tracked. People have been coming here. Um, in 2001, there was a very famous visit where Chaim Kanievsky came with, with uh, something over a thousand uh, people, childless couples, who came, and within a year, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of babies were born. That year, you could, you could check the, uh, the birth registry, that year there were many, many babies named, Chavakuk, and many more babies named, a wonderful name if you have, if you have, if you have a wonderful son, Elisha. We named our son Alicia for this Navi, Alicia Ben Shafut, Ben Sh- uh, Hanavi. Um, yeah. So that's a place that uh, we'll have to visit another time, but we just traffic uh, doesn't permit it. So instead, uh, I thought, oh, where can we go in the area? I can't just dive in Mincha in a parking lot. So we are going to dive in um, by a shul, by an old Talmudic shul where I mentioned it. Some of you are standing around me. I did a lot of talking just now. I mentioned the oldest known piece of the Talmud 
um, that we have in the world is a mosaic inscription of what's called the Brisa de Tachumim that sets the borders of Eretz Yisrael then and today. Extremely significant. The original is hanging today. A big, uh, taking a massive. Uh, anybody been in the, uh, the Israel Museum? It, um, it's downstairs and it's mounted on the wall and it's vast and huge and it describes the borders of Eretz Yisrael. What's kind of ironic about that? When you have a written description of the borders of Eretz Yisrael, very hard to translate that into a map. Right? Hard to take the two dimensions and make it into three. But um, anyway, we're going to go to the place where that was discovered and it was a vill- village from the Talmudic era. So Chazal were not only learning uh, Mishnah and Gemara, they were writing it. In the place we'll be davening in a few minutes, um, and then we'll go back. We'll go back to Yerushalayim here at Kodesh. Okay, that's our that's our plan. Hopefully, in time for dinner tonight. At a piece that was made, Golda Meir in 1948 went over to meet with King Abdullah uh, to talk about some kind of future peace with their neighbor in Jordan. Um, there's no question whether Jordan people uh, politically wonder whether it should even be a, a state. Tirat Svi, by the way, is one of the religious kibbutzim. In this area, you'll see a few of the Shluchot, uh, a few religious kibbutzim. Um, that sounds like an oxymoron, I realize. How do you have a religious kibbutz, but there is such a thing? They tend to be very um, left-wing, but okay. Anyway, she went over and met with um, King El- King. Uh, one of the reasons the Jordanians are not so at war with Israel, the, the, at least the leaders, um, the residents are, are a good majority of their Palestinians. They don't like the Israelis much, but the, but the Jordanian government um, is dependent on Israel for its water. What does that mean? It's water technology. They learn how to desalinate. They learn how to mine the, you know, they're, they're a landlocked country, so they have very great problems with water. So that's why there's been the, the least hassles of all of our neighbors. Uh, compared with Syria, Lebanon, and Egypt, Israel's had a pretty much easy go. So the border between Israel and Jordan is more, more theoretical than actual. It doesn't really create much problem. Yeah forced into the Six-Day War. King Hussein, the son of King Abdallah, the next King Hussein, uh, was not so into it, but he felt he had no alternative. You know, sometimes he had to posture. All Muslim rulers in this part of land, at least until the modern day, felt that they had to badmouth Israel in order to maintain their own stability in government. When they, when they experienced their own instability, they usually badmouthed Israel, and that got, you know, they got the populace quiet. But... Um, they haven't been so hostile since. They, we've made a formal, there's been a formal peace treaty in 1994 uh, with Jordan. Um, Yitzhak Rabin, before he was assassinated as a prime minister, he was, uh, one of his first, one of his last acts was to sign these accords with Jordan, which basically put in writing what had been more or less facts on the ground for the first few decades of Israel's existence. 1994. It was, it was, was that? I don't hear you. Um, Oslo, the Oslo Accords, which was simultaneous but not not connected, was with the Palestinians. That started in Madrid and then went to Oslo, and those were signed in '93. 1993, Danny, nice and loud. Not entirely, but it's it's largely so, not enti- and, and therefore they're more desperate for their lack of water resources. 